Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Catch Kate podcast. Today, we have another interviewee, uh, Lisa Cutcliffe from Edulous um, Foods. Her business is revolved all around foraging. She's a foraging instructor, and she's here today to tell her story about nature and how she gets people out foraging. And a current project she's involved in is the Wild Biome uh, Diet. Is that right? Yeah, Wild Biome Project. Wild Biome Project. Um, yeah, so welcome, Lisa. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm really good. Nice to be here. Very good. Um, yeah, so for anybody's listening, would you give us a little insight into what your business is all about? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm a foraging instructor, wild food specialist, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I teach people how to forage and to do that safely, sustainably, thinking about what's in your local environment and um, how much, you know, is okay to take from that community, that sort of thing. But also the range of wild ingredients that we can get in the UK, wild and feral, because I live in a city and there's a lot of urban foraging to be had as well. And it's not all native species. There's a lot of ornamentals, um, a lot of garden foraging also going on. And there's so much free, unmessed with nutrition to be had from foraging. Uh, so that's my job and my passion to help people in, enjoy what, what foods around them and they can add to their diet. Mm. And would you find, um, you know, eating wild food and you mentioned ornamentals and, you know, there's probably foreign species like mm -hmm. I always think about this when I'm traveling away and I'm eating like oranges and lemons and avocados. Like, do you know, like how that, like, is our gut built to have those as well? Or, you know. Ooh. I think we adapt because I think we'll talk about this with the biome thing. In some ways you adapt within days to what you're mm. eating. But if it's long-term diet, you know, there's still parts of the world who don't get on with lactose and dairy. And that's, you know, an evolutionary long-term difference in genetics and adaptation um you know so I think it can be very short term and longer term and and you know you'll always have trouble with certain things if you're not from a part of the world where that's been in the diet for decades and centuries or, or whether you can just have something you've never had before and your gut adapts to be able to digest it so mm. it kind of depends what it is uh, I think but I'm not an expert in that. Yeah. But I do think, you know, you can adapt and change. The diversity can change very quickly in your gut when you change a diet. Yeah, I feel like when I eat the native plants and herbs, like there's something wholesome that happens in the body almost, you know. Whereas like if I eat a pineapple, I'm like, there's some kind of funny disconnection there. You know, it almost feels a bit yeah. like, I don't know. Um, it's amazing and exotic, but it doesn't feel as grounding as, you know, eating hawberries or, you know, something like that. Um, True. But also there's the nutrient density of a, of a substance. And I think a lot of our native plants or, or their original wild type versions, which we've changed through cultivation to become sweeter or prettier or bigger or more of this particular thing, I think we lose some of the other stuff that brings the richness and the, the nutrient profile of those original species so I think when we're eating weeds natural wild plants and seaweeds and all of that we are getting the, the full nutritional profile some of which has been bred out inadvertently to get some of these more desirable qualities for farming things mm. less bitterness for example and often they have less fiber in and things like that um in the farmed versions of things because they're more palatable and they're sweeter and they give more energy but maybe they've lost some of their other qualities mm. I think that's probably what we sense in our body if we're listening to that stuff when we eat mm. plants in their original form or, or whatever yeah it's really interesting and I was actually reading yesterday about like you know just rotation planting and where to plant foods and oh. it was saying if you plant sunflower next to a cucumber your cucumber ends up way more sweeter and oh. like all of these little things that like little tricks that you know nature does itself in the wild probably by herself oh. and then like we learn how to 
you know, but I was just reading it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then and then the yes. cucumber can go up the sunflower then and trellis and, you know, just really interesting. And yeah, parent uh, um, planting partnerships and things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? It is. There's so much. It's a rabbit hole you can go down oh, very quickly. I know. Uh, it's just like, you know I, nothing. You think you know stuff and then you're like, I know nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yet people have known this for centuries. It's just tapping into it when you want to do something isn't it yeah um it's like oh I'm gonna grow some stuff what, what shall I grow and then you start realizing this information's out there you just need to find it people have already tried this for yeah thousands of you know years of cultivating things yeah and and like even just testing the ground with stuff because last year I had loads of beans and like I had you know I had them trellised on some things and then the other ones I didn't and they started like going on to all different plants and it was actually like hilarious and I was like I just let them do it and the next morning they'd be clinging on to something else and I'm like oh sure they found a way themselves you know but yeah that's what they were built for their little tendrils yeah, <laughs> fascinating um yeah so what would kind of like if you were doing a course on a Saturday now what would you kind of what would be like the layout of your day for teaching we'd meet um maybe half 10 11 and have a quick intro of basically how not to poison yourself the small print that i have to say <laughs> but also to give people an introduction to foraging and and um what what i'm about what we're about what the day will be about and to hopefully help them to be quite open-minded and um Yes, there'll be a lot of information to take in, but also think about the overall experience. You know, your your blood pressure, your well-being, your stress levels. How are you feeling being out in nature, especially for people who don't do that very much and they're dipping their toe at this point? Um, you know, the whole holistic experience is important. Then we'll just go off for a wander and we'll stop at various plants or fungi or whatever, have a look at them, and I'll tell them about what we've found um what to look out for what it might also look like you know if it's got poisonous lookalikes any folklore a good recipe idea so we'll just focus on one species at a time and learn about it and I do encourage people to take notes because um you know there's a lot of information especially if you know nothing when you've come on the course even if you don't know weeds or if you don't do any gardening or any kind of any point of reference with plants and things then it can be quite overwhelming you do get people who already know quite a few weeds and things who you're now saying we a weed is a human construct <laughs> it's not a thing there's not a, a class of plant called a weed you know it, it is something we call a, a wild probably quite successful unfussy as to where it grows wild plant that's good at seeding itself and that's what people call weeds you know when they have them in our area where we suddenly don't want them in a particular part of the environment <laughs> they become a weed and that's just really sad because a lot of those are these great edible plants that we eat as a forager anyway so we talk about that sort of thing um I usually it depends sometimes we'll have a lunch together or we'll have a meal at the end of the course other times as part of the course other times I'm just teaching and I just get people to bring their own packed lunch so we pause and have a little sit down and a natter and a nibble I might bring out some little little nibbles or something but um you know that's for the learning days which are easier for me with my full-time job as well um and, and then we'll carry on for another couple of hours so by the end people have a huge range of plants and things that we've met during the day and they can go away and look for those um but it's always interesting it's like which which thing stood out for you you know you ask each person and from all the stuff we've talked about each person resonated with different things so they've all remembered different bits of it so that's always interesting and then sometimes there's a cook-up at the end as well so if we're at the coast or it's a uh we found a lot of mushrooms or something we'll part of the course will also be a cook-up where I've brought lots of staples and things to come with it and we make our dinner or um, I've brought a cake or something like that a salad and we either add bits we forage that day depending on what site we're on or uh, I've kind of brought it all with us it was just a showcase you know it depends where we are um, and it's just lovely and our people often come on their own or just in pairs by the end of the day everyone's just chatting they've all made new friends and have just had the loveliest group experience and I just find it's the nicest, most wonderful people who come on these things. Um, 
I think just the fact that you're interested in going on a course on this, you are a certain type of person or you want to be or you used to be and you're looking to go back to. Mm-hmm. It's it's just the resonance is, is amazing. Um, and I, I just find everyone I've met on my courses are just lovely. Mm. And did you ever find something very, very, very surprising while you were out on a course that just blew people's minds? Sometimes, yeah. Something either I've never met before, which is getting rarer. So I get really excited. Um, or we find something that I've not found for years or that I've always wanted to find. Um, or it's one that's on, on someone's tick list in the group and I wasn't expecting to find it, but then we do. It's just nature being brilliant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the you know, rare fungi or not rare fungi, but just something I wasn't expecting to find. That's always my biggest thrill because I'm a fungi nut. And when we find something we weren't expecting to see um, or that I've never found, I, I do get a bit giddy. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and what's your favourite fungi? Um, probably the black trumpet, um, which is also known as the trumpet of death. Um, it's a mistranslation. It should be trumpets of the dead sort of, um, from the French, but they're called trumpets of death. And they're my favourite edible. Um, they're a little black, frilly, trumpety, funnily horn thing that grows in clumps on in the leaf litter. And they're almost impossible to see. But when you see them, they're also called the Horn of Plenty because there can be hundreds and hundreds on one individual fungus um, just all in the leaf litter around you. And that's Dance of Foraging Joy time for sure. Um, really, really happy when I find those and I don't see them that often. And would you eat them like what kind of a meal would you make or would you end up freezing them or powdering or anything? Those I would dry generally. I think it increases their flavour and they dry really well and they come back really well in the dish as well. They're quite thin, um, but the flavour just intensifies when you dry them. So I think we've got this sort of idea that fresh is best always. And I think for some mushrooms, they aren't for flavour. I think if you dry them first, you get the best out of them and some seaweeds as well. So it's, it's not that fresh is always best. Um, mm-hmm. it's knowing what to do to get the best out of each of the ingredients so after you learn the identification of species and you can be confident that that is what you have um, then it's well what do I do with it which parts are edible which processes are best to preserve it or to get the best out of it for eating it mm. and would you dry the them process. whole mm, yeah they're, they're, they're about this big usually tops can be um kind of uh they can be as wide as a tennis ball maybe um but they're the tops but they're usually a lot smaller than that so you can dry them whole and they can go onto dishes whole as well i had some lion's mane the other night and i just put it in butter like in a pan but i found it like really strong you know i was like wow you know so intense um Mm, lion's mane is lovely yeah i wish we had them in the UK more than we do, that they're completely protected by law because they're so rare in the wild here. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that's totally legal to pick them. I'm in the UK, I'm in the UK, but I'm sure it's the same in Ireland. They um are yeah, it's illegal to pick them wow. at all. Disturb the habitat, move their log, anything. Um them and so there's the uh, the bearded tooth, which is the lion's mane, uh, that's Hericium eric Erecananas, Erecaraceus, or something. I always I can spell it, but I can't pronounce it. Um, and there's also the the coral tooth, which is closely related, and that's just beautiful, um, trailing white, fine pom poms hanging down from a thing. It's absolutely stunning. Very very similar, but much finer, much more coralline in structure. Um, and that's coralloides, and those two are definitely are protected by law that they mm-hmm. mustn't be touched or anything. And yet you can cultivate them. So the ones we buy in the shops or from a, a specialist mushroom grower or the kits we can buy, they're yeah, just yeah. a block already inoculated. You can grow your own lion's mane. And it's so good for neurons and, and brain health, nerve health, um, focus, concentration, energy without sort of anxiety inducing jitters and all that. Um, it's it's a brilliant medicinal mushroom 
but yeah never pick one if you find one in the wild in fact report it to the british mycological society because it um it's really important that they are recorded and protected Mm, that's amazing I didn't know that mm. um and where would one grow them is it in like outdoors in a house in a polytunnel in a are they kind of cool environment um yeah they don't they don't need to be too warm to fruit um you need a bit of warmth to get the mycelium running in the block in the beginning apparently they're not the easiest ones to grow yourself from spawn you need quite a bit of experience in mushroom growing for that mm. like oyster mushrooms or something are much easier to learn with to begin with but um yeah the the bit of warmth will get the mycelium running inside the block of um wood chips or whatever you're growing it in uh like sawdust it needs a hardwood like beech or oak i think um lion's mane and uh, broadleaf um hardwood uh, and it it grows but then often to make them fruit you need to make it slightly cooler so a, a little bit of a drop in temperature sort of triggers it to fruit hmm. um, but yeah you don't want it freezing or anything they grow just happily in a house it's more about the humidity actually that's the issue so you need to keep them hydrated and the air around them hydrated so that they can can grow um, and swell you know because they, they just come out of nowhere they just expand and um, so they I need all of their that name. water like, i love the name lion's mane i'm like oh it sounds so like powerful or something you know yes um, they are in their way they are very yeah, powerful mushrooms very just solid even even for us as a species like you know most people aren't eating seaweeds and fungi you know like most Not people really. aren't and it's like how depleted are we you know mm-hmm. and um pretty yeah. much all the mushrooms we get in the shops are one species they're just slightly different varieties so the, the chestnut mushrooms the button mushrooms the big open breakfast mushrooms they're all the same species um you might get some king oysters you might get some shiitake they are slightly different but the average person will be eating the same species of mushroom one species their entire life if they have mushrooms at all mm. and that's again not good for variety plus they're grown in quite a sterile kind of environment so you're not getting any of the the stuff you would get from a, a mushroom from the woods yeah i imagine all the plant matter and the just the nutrition of the wood the woodland or the field or wherever it is you know well it's um, it's talking about the microbiome which we're going to come to i guess that you know the surface of things that are in the wild that they're not irradiated or washed you know that they're just covered in their natural bacteria and yeasts and things from the environment that is what enriches our gut biome as well. Um, it, it's That's why forage things and organic gardening and things are really important. When we have things that aren't cooked, um, all of that comes into our system as well and we need it and it helps us. Mm. Interesting. The other uh, thing about mushrooms is vitamin D. They are able to produce vitamin D when they're in the sun like we do. Mm. So if we dry mushrooms in the sun or put them in, the sunlight um they can they can increase their vitamin c their vitamin d um, amount in them as well mm. wow yeah and it's probably only nature's intricate timing the way she gr- produces all these amazing things in autumn when we're so lacking in vitamin d and it's like why are they there you know <laughs> obviously we need to eat them you know um, oh, that's true yeah um and for anybody who would love to maybe venture out and try a new species of mushroom like would you have any tip on which one they could start with if there's Mm, you've got to be really careful because there's a lot you need to kind of understand before or if they were to buy foraging mushrooms a specialist you know like what would be a good one for nutrition even just to start yeah, the lion's mane, if you can get hold of fresh lion's mane or even dried ones, um, they're really good. Oyster mushrooms are great as well. In mm. fact, the, the the boring bog standard mushroom is very good for you, uh, full of good fibres and a bit of um, carbohydrates and proteins. So they're not um, they're not bad, the ones we cultivate. They're great, actually. They must be cooked, though. You're not supposed to eat them raw, by the way. They can be carcinogenic if you have too much raw agaricus mushrooms. Mm. Um, you need to cook them, cook your mushrooms. Um, 
other ones are fine raw it's different it's just that family you do you are supposed to cook them a bit like you shouldn't eat raw potatoes there's similar things like that um and they taste better anyway <laughs> um the other ones you can get i mean you can get you can actually get cordyceps fresh cordyceps and dried cordyceps um from specialist mushroom growers now in the uk or from asia that's another highly medicinal mushroom little long orange clubs i guess that they're very long and spindly and those have the energy and loads of other um medicinal properties immunity and all that sort of thing but yeah lion's mane i think is one of the most potent um and oyster mushrooms are pretty good too and you can grow your own oyster mushrooms at home mm. and you can get them in the average supermarket too um and you're taking part in a project at the moment would you give us yes. a little uh yeah insight onto that yeah there's a bit of background first um to the wild biome project two or th two and a half years ago um monica wild who's another forager and herbalist um she decided on black friday um in 2020 to see if she and her partner Matthew if they could not buy any food for a year they were really fed up with the whole consumerism of the Black Friday stuff and just how vulgar it all is really consumerism um also the, you know the food shortages and the Brexit stuff there was so much going on that was threatening our food system that she just thought could somebody live on just foraged food um let's do it for a year so that's what she decided to do not with actually that much planning they had a lot of stores in the house I mean I've been there lots of times and they are there is just jars and stuff everywhere but I think um, normally in a community or a person's life in those sorts of environments you would have saved up lots of things ready for the next season so you would prepare for the next months and you would definitely would prepare for the winter and I think she didn't want to wait another year to do it so she just did it but she wasn't actually <laughs> fully prepared certainly with nut stores and things like that yeah um they were burning through their nut stores in no time just for calories over the winter and it was like wow okay so it just was a really interesting insight she's, she's written a book about the experience and what they learned and um how it went it's really beautiful it's called the wilderness cure my wild and it's a beautiful read really interesting um, lots of other history facts in there and what people used to do and research she did about each ingredient or what people used to do say in the stone age mesolithic you know pre-farming from evidence and all this sort of thing so it's really really interesting varied book and it's lovely and so this this happened and we were all following that and cheering around and sending a little little uh, parcels of forage things to to feed them over the winter because they were like we're really hungry um but it was <laughs> it got better spring came but they were under snow for like 44 weeks uh, 44 days which is a long time that's longer than you usually get in that part of scotland and so just having greens it was like got sick of meat and it was just really tricky so it was very interesting following that journey through all four seasons and she wanted to write a paper about it and stuff. But of course, two people is not a study and it's not good enough evidence based. Plus, there were no controls and things like that. So she said, OK, I want to do a study and maybe I'll be able to recruit some people to, to do the diet as well. So we get a variety of people. So we managed to get 26 of us who said, all right, we'll do it uh, for three months. We decided to do it for three months from the spring equinox, 21st of March to the summer solstice um june the 21st so it's three months uh, 90 days something like that and yeah it's challenging <laughs> um and what we committed to it wasn't about spending money this time this was a this is purely about the effect on the gut and your body in general so it's not that we're not allowing people to buy a bit of game and stuff especially if they live in a city it's much more about the species you're eating where it comes from how it was grown or where it grew um just avoiding all pesticides and anything that wouldn't have been round in the you know mesolithic period or whatever and um we are we are allowed to have freezers and stuff you know it is we're not trying to be stone age people living in the center of a town you know but it is it's about the species um if if it wasn't around in that period then it's not in the diet so 
that means no grains like wheat and barley and stuff like that. No potatoes, no tomatoes, no peppers, no carrots. <laughs> um, so no, none of the root vegetables and things like that were around. There wasn't really any legumes that we have now, not really. Um, so there's no nice big chunky veg, no big starchy things to eat. So we're mostly eating wild meat, wild fish and seafood, seaweeds, fungi, nuts, seeds. Mm. Um, there are some grasses and things which will come out, but they're not really flowering yet. And they're very, very fibrous and not much energy in them, but you can use them a little bit. And um, and yeah, just all the plants, you know, and trees. So there's a lot of edible bits of trees. There's lots of roots, but they're hard to get and they're very bitter. So, yeah, it's very low carb diet, um, very low sugar. Quite, uh, say quite low fat, but actually from the animals and the fish, we have been getting quite a bit of oil and also the nuts. Um, hazelnuts yeah, I, had, I had, I had, um, was it duck? Yeah, it was duck one night. Mm -hmm. And I actually was like, it felt like the thing was like 80% fat, you know, I was Cultivated like, Cultivated duck is, will be, yeah. I was like, what is this? You know? Yeah, I cooked a goose one time, a cultivated goose, and the, it was two inches thick of, of fat came off of it in the bottom of the tray and had to sort of hoist it up out of that so that it would actually cook, roast rather than confit the whole bottom half of it. It was insane. I was so shocked how much fat came off of it. But wild animals don't, they don't have as much fat like that. It's, okay. it's the cultivated ones, um, the, the, the reared ones that have that a level of fat. But yeah, ducks and geese do have a bit of fat, certainly before the winter, because a lot of animals will fatten up before. Mm -hmm. so that they can survive the winter when there isn't a lot to graze or eat or whatever or there's ice on the pond or whatever you're living on um so bef so just at the beginning of winter you can get fat off of a lot of animals but a lot of us didn't really know we were doing this or whatever so we didn't we didn't collect a lot <laughs> enough i don't think fat because cooking without fat is really really hard mm -hmm. um and nut oils you shouldn't use on a high heat at all. So they're for fresh eating and, and making, you know, mayonnaise or something. But you can't, shouldn't cook with sort of hazelnut oil or something like that. So it's deer fat and any animals that we can get some fat off of. Squirrels have a little bit. Rabbits have a little bit. So um, a friend of mine was eating badger fat because he found a badger. And the badger fat's really sweet. I tried some this weekend. It was so sweet. It was not bitter at all it was very interesting very very soft and um nutritious who knew um and deer deer does have some but it, it by this time of year sort of march now march april it they've lost all their 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 winter um insulation mm. so it can be quite hard to get fat off of deer at this time of year um, but we've been using that deer tallow, so you render that down and it becomes a fat, but it goes off very, very quickly. Um, so I'm freezing it and just taking little bits out to use. Um, I found that it, it goes rancid very, very quickly, whereas duck and goose fat doesn't. So it's been a real learning curve about things like that that I've never needed to do before. You just mm -hmm. you just buy olive oil, don't you? Or you buy vegetable oil. It's so easy. And yeah, when so you suddenly easy. don't have that, it's challenging and it's uh, a good challenge. I'm enjoying the challenge. Wow, amazing. And so you're a few couple of weeks in now, so Yes, day fourteen today. Well, hey. Um yes. are you finding a difference in your digestion? Yes, um much slower. Um not to get too graphic, but yeah, I I've not been pooing every day at all. Just not the volume of food. Um, but it's very good and eating healthy and easy and um I feel great. I feel absolutely brilliant. Um, it's it's even even within a couple of days, I just felt great and not hungry, um, and just eating small tapas dish sized plates, like really small, and I'm done. I'm full. It was so bizarre. I would have eaten two or three times that on a plate, volume wise of food on there, easily. And of course, I'd have been so hungry to devour it too because of the. The sugar, the carbs, you get your sugar highs and lows, your blood sugar spiking all over the place. And also you have bacteria in your gut that if you eat a lot of sugars, the bacteria that 
like that and feast on that proliferate when they get hungry when the sugar level gets low again down there they all release chemicals and affect your body in such a way that the chemicals go to your brain that make you want to eat more sugar i mean they they farm us you know <laughs> um they're saying the microbiome is like a another brain it, it really is um such a source of the effects on our behavior and our brain chemistry and our body chemistry um so i found in myself that as soon as i stop sugar they just that if you did a test within within seven days i should think you would see that those have all dropped off and died off and those their numbers have reduced down massively meanwhile if you're eating more sort of bitter and acidic foods than things that eat those things and the fiber eating things they all proliferate because there's so much food for them and it's not such a sweet hostile environment for them they they grow instead and your your digestion works and, and adapts to that very quickly so that's that's kind of what happens and so the other thing is high protein it also inhibits a, a hunger hormone so it you also don't feel as hungry and you feel full very quickly on a much smaller volume of food um, and less and fewer calories. But like I said earlier as well, what you're eating is much more nutritionally dense too. So you're still getting all the sustenance you need from much less food in terms of volume and also the protein and the animal products and the um, seafood but also the plants themselves, they sustain you in a different way to nutrient devoid, pretty supermarket food. Yeah, wow. It'll be interesting to see the progress now, even in terms of like, you know, when you think of your hair and your skin and even your overall mood, because like all the serotonin is in the gut, you know. Mm. So true. A mental journey too. <laughs> well, it has been interesting because I, so I hadn't been drinking leading up to this. I have, I'm not a big drinker anyway. I'll have big blowouts and have a party, you know, whatever, but I don't drink a lot routinely. Um, so alcohol wasn't really an issue for me to just stop, but I know it was for some people um, on the program. But sugar and, well, carbs and caffeine were the things I knew I would have to deal with in myself from my habits leading up to this. Um, I only had one coffee a day. I don't have any other caffeine generally because I don't sleep well if I have caffeine after midday. But I'd usually start the day at some point before 10 o'clock. I would have a coffee, quite a strong one, maybe even a double espresso amount of coffee mm. in in a drink. And I would, I'd love that. It's my morning routine. Wake up, have a coffee, not feel I'm awake until I've had a coffee and then start functioning after that. And it would help my focus and stuff. But also would amp up anxiety and jitteriness and just generally feeling a bit panicky. <laughs> um, but I figured that was just life and I've got a lot to do. But um, I decided to come off of it a little bit earlier because I didn't want to be dealing with sugar withdrawal and caffeine withdrawal. Bam, straight away the yeah. same day. Wow. I didn't want a headache for three days. I didn't want to feel rubbish. I wanted to love and enjoy this diet. So I did wind those down, but I did have some of both quite a bit the, the day before as well. But I did make sure I just gave myself the best chance to not fall off the wagon within <laughs> within half an hour of beginning because I really wanted a coffee or something. So I was really worried about that. And you know what? I haven't missed it at all. I haven't missed caffeine. I miss I miss having a coffee. I miss the ritual of that and how it makes you feel. But I don't actually need it and I don't want it. Um, and I was I love butter. I love cheese. I love bread. <laughs> um, I love roast potatoes. You know, th there's things I'm missing having with some of this beautiful food that oh that would go so well with this <laughs> this needs this wild... yeah i know what would there's be like nothing a... similar for those things there's okay, nothing there's that no you wild... can really substitute no and there's no gluten in any of the things we can find here so wow the structure of of bread and cake and biscuits and pa pastry it's really challenging to try and make something 
similar in satisfaction and texture we're working on it people are coming up with some great stuff it's really fascinating yeah, I'm like what people are working with it. the limited palette you know like they are being super creative and it's really and so much really invigorating acorns and chestnuts so many different yes. being made and I saw a nettle a nettle cake and I don't know <laughs> yeah um nettle cake I expect the nettle cakes are normally um they're just normal cake but with the nettle in that's absolutely delicious I love nettle cake um but maybe yeah, maybe somebody's managed to make one <laughs> with leaves wild <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, the challenge is it's the structure it's really challenging it's really hard yeah. but if you've got deer fat or something and you've got chestnut flour and acorn flour and um people have been adding things like ground up jelly mushrooms or carrageen seaweed or psyllium husk type things that the native plantains making that that act a bit like chia seeds we've been people have been experimenting to try and find ways to bind stuff together without yeah. the gluten that yeah. is allowable and it's been so inspiring what people are coming up with we are allowed eggs i need to mention this because in the pre-farming hunter gatherers they absolutely would have gone and stolen birds eggs mm. from nests and at this time of the year that would have been quite abundant um but we are restricting eggs just because they're there and they're easy and we're familiar with them. But we are substituting in some egg allowance just because that is what would have happened. It's just totally illegal and we don't want to be taking wild birds eggs. Mm. So organic, free range, unmessed with happy hens and things or ducks or whatever. You can eat them. That's fine. Um, but yeah, that's that and honey are the two allowances we're sort of putting in that aren't you know we know they're not forage. And are you allowed milk? Wild honey. No, no. I was just People thinking they're really just a milk funny animals. thing. You know, but like if if a mother say back hunter gatherer time if a mother was breastfeeding would they drink her milk, you know? Oh, they might do. I don't know, but they they probably give it all to the kids because yeah, um you know, they'd need that that start in life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they milked animals. They didn't domesticate animals, so you didn't get milk. Um so no we're not including dairy of any kind um i know people sometimes call eggs dairy but i mean dairy dairy milk dairy um mm. you can milk you can blitz up hazelnuts and and get us some sort of milk so we're using that if we need something a little bit creamy or something but um you have to have been able to store up a, a lot of hazelnuts i mean a lot to use yeah this amount if you're if you're only using a bit of honey and deer fat and stuff as your fat sources. Um, the nuts are really important, not just for flour, but also for that that energy. Mm. Um, so hazelnuts are particularly valuable because they're so oily out of all the nuts. Acorns and chestnuts aren't oily. They're more starchy, but they're not oily. So it's using the right thing for the right job and being creative with it. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it. Wow. And they were saying, I was reading somewhere that chestnut is more like a potato. Kind of is. It's, it is. It's sweet and starchy and sort of crumbly. It's not. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of structure when you bake something with it. Mm -hmm. See, normally you would mix that in with some wheat flour or something with gluten in just to reduce the amount of gluten and wheat you're using. But that still makes the structure in there and then the sweet chestnut brings other things to it I'm, I'm shocked at how sweet chestnut flour is um, I saw people making like a porridge for breakfast out of it and you just put water with the flour and mix it together and it, you've got like a porridgey sort of thing wow. it's so sweet I actually couldn't have a lot of it so so rich no way mm. and what about the cashew tree where is that from not from here no yeah that much I'm thinking because I've, I've often made things that cash like cheesecakes and stuff and oh my oh, god yeah. it's divine cashews and peanuts would be really helpful but yeah they're not <laughs> they're not native at all yeah, I don't yeah. grow here really um you could you, I think you might be able to grow peanuts but they don't do well here yeah, yeah. um and we don't have a lot of starchy roots really so we've got burdock um we've got like reed mace, so the uh, bulrush type thing. They have big rhizomes that are quite starchy. And what you end up with that of that is a lot of processing. They're very fibrous, but you can sort of wash out all the starch and then silt it out. Mm. But it 
that's almost like corn flour. It's very, very fine and it does thicken things. It's starch, basically. There's no sort of substance to it. So you can get that. You can make wildflowers from quite a few things. Um, so you've got your acorn and your uh, chestnut and that sort of thing. But there's also oh, birch bark and there's uh, linden fruits. And you know, there's sort of things you can use to make a flower-like thing. Um, my friend Richard was using the bulrush seeds he's been drying those out and blitzing them up and it makes again a lovely soft flower-like thing so there's lots of options to sort of have something like that and they are very nutritious but still without gluten it just makes it not behave like you would expect if you're used to cooking mm. with gluten and glutinous flour in your cooking mm. and would you think in your opinion gluten has had obviously it's amazing for to making foods like that yeah. but for our guts like do you think it's had a negative or gluten's actually a protein and i just think it's not villainous in itself at all but i think that our wheat and that kind of thing has been bred to such an extent that it's very 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 high in gluten and also people just eat bread and they just eat pasta and they just mm-hmm. they they've overloaded on wheat in every meal of the day yeah three or four times a day just having it all the time and so you can understand why allergies occur and all of this sort of thing and there's lots of reasons why people have allergies but I do think the older grains which were slightly less of that in there this this didn't seem to be an issue so I think it's the the sheer volume and monotony you know yeah we're not having the diversity so diversity is key I don't think gluten itself is a problem and actually I think a lot of people if it's not like celiac proper autoimmune response to it i'm talking about people who just have a a bloating or they're not digesting it very well uh, the gluten i think it's if they increase their diversity and reduce their inflammation and stress levels they're often able to eat it again just fine mm-hmm. so it's not a permanent situation i think it's just a symptom of a lot of the habits we've got into yeah. in the in the the west or just the world in general now really yeah that said you know like I said I put on a lot of weight and so I am not healthy right now or I wasn't two weeks ago um you know and if I carried on at this weight or getting any heavier I think I'd start having serious health issues maybe pre-diabetes you know pre-diabetic issues I'd probably start um getting you know blood pressure issues cholesterol issues um and some of those were just over the normal range in my blood test which is, again is a warning of this is the time you know so it, do you it's do already blood close test just before the diet yeah. okay mm-hmm. that's cool yeah. so we, we did a, a gut sample stool sample um and we did blood tests we did a finger prick one that was to work out how we digest fats in our body just to get information of what sort of type of system we have because each person's different that's yeah. with all the zoe project stuff and then separately, we've also been raising money to try and also do more blood tests that are just us doing it ourselves, um, which are, you know, two, three hundred quid a pop. They're quite expensive to get done through a sort of private company that will do the lab work for you and do it to a standard that could be used in a study and stuff. So we're doing one at the beginning and end of everybody's stint as well. And that is a nutrition one. So that will do all your cholesterol and your um, vitamins um and that sort of thing your iron levels your ferritin that kind of thing and then also a hormone test which is based on your your sex and um for women you take it in a certain point in your cycle um so that they're all you know aligned um men can take it any time and that looks at your thyroid and and lots of other things in your hormone levels and we'll we'll compare all of that at the beginning and end of our diet stints just just because we were doing it and it's a really rare opportunity to get such a pool of people doing such an extreme mm, diet definitely. and um but we, we're not there yet we haven't got all the money for the second lot at the end yet so we're still desperately trying to raise money there's a gofundme okay. and wild bio wild biome so if anyone feels inspired to give us a hand with some citizen science then please do um donate even just you know a little bit yeah. would and i can add link up. up i can link up on the instagram or whatever yeah, because no or one's getting paid to do this. this is, no one's getting paid for any of this. It, it, yeah. It's just to to get those blood tests, which we yeah. can't afford it's, to fund ourselves. It's too expensive. Yeah, it's so inspiring. So well done. Thank you. Yeah, we're loving it. 
you know, it's it's wonderful and great that you can all be in it together as a community, as a team. And you're probably, I presume you're probably WhatsApping each other and like, what's we your are? Yeah. today? <laughs> it has, we, we're tagging each other and we're always tagging the Wild Biome Instagram. So if you want to follow the project and see overall what people are doing anyone who shares anything about it it gets it gets put on there so I mean there's lots of posts but it's it's a you know an intense short period and then it'll sort of slow down but while we're on it and you know it's 20 potentially 26 people's updates and stuff but it's it's fascinating to see the breadth and not everyone's on social media like like all of us are so there's lots of interesting stuff it is inspiring I'm totally inspired by everybody else and even managing to make some really pretty dishes still as well. Some of them look really appealing. And um, I think Alex managed to make some gnocchi the other day of some descriptions. I've got to try that. Fergus <laughs> made these biscuits. I'm like, right, got to try that. It's just oh. so inspiring and creative juices are flowing. And I think yeah. the boredom creates the, right, what can I do with what I've got? Or, ooh, I found some of this. Right, let's make something with that. And or someone sent me this in a parcel today. How lovely, you know, ooh, different nuts or some seaweed I haven't had before or something. And wow. or some some juice they'd preserved from bilberries or something that I didn't do, you know. So it's just lovely, lovely, lovely community effort. Feeling very loved and supported. People just sort of sending out little gifts from their own stores if they're not doing the project, but they're foragers. And for you, like getting into foraging, did you like going to college and study something or did you just happen upon it and it was your path in the UK you can't really do a course and do a qualification in foraging okay. not really um there are some sort of online diplomas and stuff but it's you can't just you can't just learn foraging like that it's very experiential and takes yeah. a long time to really get to know it all and the the thing is, learning about it now, there's so much information out there. Yeah. Um, there's so many blogs and books and um, feeds to follow. And you do have to sense check anything you, you read online, of course, and research it for yourself. But there's so much information out there now. It's a great time to learn about this again because so many people have made it so accessible. Yeah. And there's plenty of courses and instructors to choose from as well. Because when I was first learning, it was me and books on my own, terrified of eating mushrooms, but really, really wanting to. I had to learn a lot before I dared to eat anything because it was so hard to not have anyone to ask anything about. The internet was on dial-up, you know. It was like really, really long time ago. I didn't know other people did this. I just saw them finding porcini mushrooms on a cooking program. I just thought, what, they grow here? And that was it. That's what started it. I went to go and find some. It it took me five years to find my first ones on my own because I had no one else to mentor Mm -hmm. me or help me. Just me and books. So you can teach yourself and a lot of people, especially the more experienced foragers now, are self-taught or had a mentor. um, Or grew up in a country where it's just endemic. Everyone does it. Mm -hmm. They learn from their parents and their grandparents but yeah. not so much in this country. Mm. Yeah, so it's, hopefully that it's will inspire some people to get a book and just have a wander and, you know. Yeah, and there's plenty of good books now. Um, all the Roger Phillips ones, things like that, they're still excellent. Um, he's no longer with us, sadly, but he he made some excellent books that were very important to most of us. Um, and there's plenty of other people who've written good books now. Some are ID books and some are more sort of, recipes and inspiring and how to actually use these ingredients I think you need a combination of the two you need foraging books and wild edibles books but you also need field guides which don't tell you the edibility but they tell you how to absolutely identify each species and all the rest of the things in that family so it puts the edible species in context with all the other ones and their cousins and stuff that could look like them Mm -hmm. that you don't have in the foraging books they just have the one that's good to eat but they could have all these cousins that are really similar and so you need the field guides to nail down which species you actually have to make sure it's the right one well um thank you so much for coming on um if there's any last bit you want to share about your work or anything you want to share with the people let us know hmm not really. I mean, I am part of um, an association of foragers. So there's a lot of people who know their stuff. And if you want to learn about foraging, you can go and look on there and follow a few people. My Instagram is at Edulis Wild Food, E-D-U-L-I-S. Um, so you're really welcome to follow 
me and see this crazy adventure but I do post quite a lot anyway give a lot of free information out but it also tells you where to find about my courses if you're anywhere near in my vicinity but I do recommend going on a course if you want to learn about foraging get yourself on a course with somebody um, it will blow your mind and it will give you a really good grounding in how to go about this if you've got no idea at all or even if you've got some clue I still think you'll learn so much from a day with someone who knows a lot about it um, I'd highly recommend that before eating anything yourself that you foraged it, it can be a minefield but it's also a wonderful joy for mental health physical and spiritual well-being you know it's just the most wonderful activity and it's, it's in our bones it's in our genes I do think and going back to this hunter-gatherer lifestyle is I don't know it just feels like home it's weird um it's right it's like that primal thing mm -hmm. because we've never actually evolved like we're not built for the concrete no. and the tv all day like we're built for nature and in nature and that's why it feels so right like if and I don't get my living. hands in the soil on a given day, like I'm totally yeah. off center. Yes. Or like when I go to town, like literally when I get back, I'm like, I need to go into the mm -hmm. tunnel or I need to go into the soil. And like I spend an hour then and I'm grand again, but I'm totally off center. And like, I know that's just me and my individual experience, but like, I know when you're living in it, because I lived in it for like a couple of years, I was totally off balance and I didn't know it, you know? And I'd be like looking at the rivers and I'd be like, look at the rivers in the city. And I'm like staring at them trying to find some kind of like center and essentially I just had to come back home like to the farm and Gosh. get balance yeah it's hard we yeah. need it seasonal living as well we've got out of that habit you can get anything anytime and we don't live with and you know we don't slow down in winter we don't rest we yeah. carry on to the craziness up to Christmas and then back to school and it's all bonkers we don't have a natural rest season anymore and nature has one and we don't do it we just carry on because we've got heating and electricity and freezers and import imported strawberries from israel you know at any time of the year mm. and we're suffering for that i think we are oh definitely yeah definitely and you know what my teeth have never been so shiny <laughs> okay i'm gonna eat wild food only <laughs> <laughs> just just have less sugar it's amazing <laughs> Um, just honey, just honey for me. Um, oh, honey is lovely though. Yeah, amazing. Um, so thank you, Lisa, for coming on. Um, it was a pleasure thank you for having me. Yeah, delighted to hear all your bits and bobs, and I might be getting a couple of more wild foodies on, so that'll be exciting. Oh. Um, we get the education and the knowledge out there, and if anybody wants to find out more, they can find you on Instagram and yes. go to your courses. Um, thank you. So thank you folks for tuning in today. If you like this episode, please give it a share. And if you're on Apple podcast, please give it a review. That would really help. And if you're a Patreon, thank you so, so, so much. You're really helping me with my conservation work and um, buying all my bee equipment and all of that stuff. So thank you for that. And if you can support, please go on to patreon.com slash catch caught. And we'll see you all very soon. Sloan. <laughs>